Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Populist Revolt. Please follow along on the PowerPoint and turn to the first slide, Gilded Age Politics. One theme of this class is that politics reflects a society, and society reflects politics meaning that political parties and their issues reflect particular views of their constituencies. What is a constituency, you ask? Well, it is a group of supporters that vote in a certain area for a certain politician. And a goal of this class is for you to understand that historical constituencies of various major parties have changed over time and how that change led the parties to adopt new policies. This will help you understand modern political parties, their constituencies, and their issues. And it will also help you avoid what partisan talking heads do in the news and on social media, where they attempt to convince you that the Democrats or the Republicans have always been the same. That is a bald-faced lie. So in order to understand the evolution of the parties you need a knowledge base on what the parties fought over in the Gilded Age and how the populist revolt radically changed the electorate and the party system for generations. The two main parties in the Gilded Age were the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats opposed what they called, quote, Negro rule, unquote, during Reconstruction, and they insisted that the Confederates had fought nobly for their rights. They declared themselves the party of white supremacy, and they believed in more laissez-faire economics and favored the concept of personal liberty, which stressed no government involvement in everyday life. Democrats also opposed the efforts of moral reformers, and they appealed to the constituencies of Western and Southern farmers, immigrants, and Catholics because the latter two did not like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants telling them what to do, what not to drink, and how to observe the Sabbath. Lastly, the Democrats were strongest in the South, and they dominated elections there, leading the region to be called the Solid South. And this electoral dominance lasted until 1968, when LBJ and the Democrats embraced civil rights and led many segregationists to bolt the party, in favor of Republicans. By comparison, in this era, the Republicans labeled themselves as the party of union and used the electoral tactic called waving the bloody shirt whenever they could. And this tactic basically reminded union veterans that, quote, while not every Democrat was a traitor, every traitor was a Democrat, end quote. Republicans claimed to be the bastion of native-born, middle-class Protestantism, so their constituency were wasps, middle-class Protestant reformers, the elite, the professional classes, and some industrial workers. They were strongest in New England, the Plain States, and the Upper Midwest, and national elections usually hinged on three swing states, New York, Ohio, and Indiana, and obviously that is where many of the presidents came from in this era. Unlike today, Republicans in this era believed in positive government, the idea that big government could help people's daily lives. But they did not take this that far. They did not want to reform the economy to protect people from business, 
but they wanted to protect society from bad people. So they supported various reform movements like temperance, Protestant education, assimilation, and Sabbatarianism, which means not working on Sundays, and lastly, soldiers' pensions. Now despite this, by today's standards, the Gilded Age government was very laissez-faire. So the point is that these parties really only have their names in common with the modern-day iterations. They share very little otherwise. But as we will see, the movement towards modern politics and the changes in the parties will begin with the Gilded Age. So please turn to the next slide entitled, Issues and Rewards. If those were the major constituencies and their issues, what did political parties battle over? Well, the major issue, of course, was tariffs, which means taxes on imports as well as currency. Before the First World War, with the Civil War as the exception, tariffs were the biggest source of government revenue. Republicans wanted high tariffs, not for income, but to protect U.S. industry which they claimed would protect working Americans. Democrats said that the tariff served special interest because it raised prices for the common people. In this era, and unfortunately much like today, people were intensely loyal to political parties and wore their loyalties on their sleeves. But being political was more than just voting in this era. It meant participating in numerous parades, rallies, barbecues, poll raisings, and speeches. The idea was that these rituals provided participatory entertainment that kept you focused on party politics year-round. In return for votes, politicians would often take care of people. And in this era, and again, unfortunately, much like today, the parties developed a system of patronage. Patronage is how politicians gave favors and jobs in civil service in exchange for people's votes. While this, of course, had been going on since the country's beginning, it grew in the aftermath of the Civil War. In 1871, there were just 53,000 civilians on government payroll. By 1881, there was 107,000 civilians on the payroll. And patronage was especially prevalent at the local level. This constant effort at policy dissemination and party rituals was successful in getting out the vote. From the 1840s to 1900, 80 to 90% of all eligible voters cast ballots at the polls. Today, we're lucky if we get 45% of eligible electorates at the polls. Now, there's a question, though, that you can consider. Are people really interested in the issues or in revelry? Meaning, do they care about currency, or do they want to have a giant party on election day, get favors from party bosses, and ride the whiskey wagon, and benefit from fraud? And for those of you who don't know, the whiskey wagon is where basically a wagon full of whiskey, paid for by a politician, came into town, you got a bunch of people drunk in a barn for a while, and then unleashed them on a given city wherever they were going to go vault multiple times, getting fights on the street. It was a giant brouhaha, and in some ways, we should bring it back. Kidding, obviously. The reason this is important is because we will see the 20th century move away from party politics and towards what are called referendums and recalls, ballot initiatives, and single-issue organizations. 
which will finally result in the political parties losing power to the people, at least theoretically. The last topic we need to cover is how the parties were run. In this era, and unfortunately like much today, political machines, meaning local political organizations, often ran large cities. One example of this was Tammany Hall, an infamous Democratic machine in New York City that was highly corrupt. Political machines tended to be Democratic because they depended on immigrant votes in the cities, though there were also numerous Republican machines as well, like in Atlantic City, New Jersey. While political machines were viewed as corrupt or fraudulent, they did some good things. For instance, they got stuff done for the people, like providing water, mass transit, gas, and electricity. They would often distribute turkeys on Thanksgiving and hand out bags of coal in the winter, found people lawyers, and aided the poor. Basically, they provided aid that the government did not provide. But of course, they did this for votes and money, not for philanthropic reasons. However, regardless of motivations, they at least still helped the people. But as I said, they also had a bad side. They tended to be very corrupt. City governments often contracted with private companies, and machines paid companies inflated prices with an agreement that they would kick back money to the politicians. One example, the Tweed Courthouse, built by Tammany Hall, cost twice as much as what the United States government paid for the state of Alaska. So clearly, the party system was not perfect, and all of these issues will convince many for the need for reform. So please advance to the next slide entitled, Patronage and Reform. Due to all of the issues I outlined a minute ago, many believed that government were filled with crooks, and eventually there were calls for reform. And this was brought to a head in 1881, when James Garfield was president. His vice president was a man called Chester Arthur. And four months after becoming president, Garfield was walking in a Washington, D.C. railroad station and was assassinated by Charles Guiteau, a deranged man and supposedly a disappointed office seeker. So as a result, Arthur became the president. But the problem was that Arthur was the poster child for patronage. His last role had been the collector of customs at the Port of New York, and he had made thousands of appointments. Becoming the vice president was the only elected job he had ever had. Ironically, it was his government that cracked down on patronage. During Arthur's presidency, Congress passed and he signed the Pendleton Act in 1883. And Arthur also enacted civil service reform that established exams for government jobs. However, this had actually been established in China during the Han Dynasty over 500 years earlier. So we were a little behind the curve, you could say. These efforts, while praiseworthy, in reality, only covered about 10% of the federal jobs and no state jobs. Regardless, it established the principle that a government job should be a matter of merit, not who you knew. This is something that is also under attack in our modern era. But let us now turn to a new issue, mentioned earlier, that will help break the death grip of the two parties over the electorate and inaugurate the populist revolt to Gilded Age politics. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Currency.
As mentioned earlier, currency was one of the two big political issues of the era. For nearly a century, the traditional belief in the United States was that all paper money should be backed by gold and silver. But during the Civil War, the desperate U.S. government issued $450 million in greenbacks, which was paper currency not backed by precious metals. This also corresponded with a massive worldwide deflationary crisis from 1873 to 1897. This deflationary crisis created endemic conflict over wages and the cost of production. This is why businesses fought so hard to control wages and why they practiced vertical and horizontal integration. So rather than just mean-spirited, predatory policies, this was just logical business moves in this economic climate. This deflationary crisis concerned some people because the world's vigorous industrial economies like England and Germany, had adopted the gold standard. In the 1870s, Congress decided that greenbacks would gradually be taken out of circulation and that the mints would stop coining silver. So in other words, the United States was moving towards a gold standard. Now, theoretically, this would restrict the money supply, causing prices to drop and interest rates to rise. And while most Northeastern businessmen liked this, most farmers, especially in the South and in the West, vehemently opposed it. And as stated in a previous lecture, farmers survived on credit and were already suffering from low prices. Farmers believed any restriction of the money supply, meaning the gold standard, was a conspiracy of bankers and financiers to screw over the little man. And farmers wanted the government to put more paper money in circulation meaning they wanted to cause inflation, because that way it would be easier to pay off their debts. They also wanted the government to help the nation's producers, not what they called parasites, meaning railroads, merchants, banks, financiers, monopolies, etc. This animosity to these groups is a consistent theme in American history until the Red Scares of the 20th century. Also, as a quick aside, that the Wizard of Oz, in its reference to the Yellow Brick Road, was a reference to why Americans need to stay on the gold standard. Well, regardless, some people in government heard these complaints, so Congress passed the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890. This legislation required the government to regularly buy up a limited amount of silver and issue paper money in the same amount. This act appalled many businessmen who feared the economy might be destabilized. However, this act was too little too late. So please turn to the next slide entitled, Economic Hardship. From 1889 to 1890, there was a terrible drought on the Great Plains and declining wheat and corn prices. In addition, Railroads continued to charge farmers high rates, and remember that farmers in the South and West had been struggling since the Civil War. Angered by these actions, farmers did not just sit around waiting for government help. They formed local, state, and eventually regional alliances. Alliances tried to form co-ops where farmers could pool their crops, wait for better prices, 
and then market them directly to consumers. This would allow them to bypass middlemen, merchants, and bankers, all of whom charged high interest rates. Farmers also wanted the government to create a sub-treasury plan, which would allow farmers to store crops in government warehouses, and in turn, the government would lend farmers paper money in the amount of that stored crop at a low interest rate. With a sub-treasury plan, farmers would no longer have to mortgage crops to merchants like they had been doing in the South. As usual, many opponents saw this as radical government interference in the private sector, and they depicted the Alliancemen as hayseeds and crackpots, or socialists. But these people are just hard-working farmers trying to survive a deflationary period under a restrictive currency policy. That's not socialism. It is a constant tactic in American politics to call anyone who wants to alleviate the ills of runaway capitalism as a socialist or worse. The point is that this economic crisis will lead to a major third-party challenge that will change politics in the United States forever. So please turn to the next slide entitled, Third Party Challenge. Neither the Democrats nor the Republican Party fully supported what the alliances wanted. So by 1892, disaffected voters formed a new political party, the People's Party. And the members of this party called themselves populists. This party ultimately became one of the most successful third-party challenges between the Civil War and today. So, what did the populists want? The most radical was their call for the government ownership of railroads and the telegraphs, so this can be legitimately called socialism. Less radical was that farmers wanted more silver and paper money to cause inflation and make it easier to pay their debts. Populists also wanted a peacetime progressive income tax. So let me ask you, what is a progressive tax? It is a graduated tax, meaning that you have multiple tax brackets based on wealth, and usually graduated lesser to more based on your income. Whereas regressive taxation is taxing the poor more than the rich and often leads to unstable economies in vast economic inequality. Anyway, the last thing the populace wanted was low-interest loans for farmers. So as you can see, this all gets back to their economic plight. On July 4th, 1892, the first National Populist Convention occurred in Omaha, Nebraska, and they stated that, quote, the interests of rural and civil labor are the same enemies identical, end quote. They want to rally all producers, including factory workers, miners, and farmers, in order to challenge this system. So let us see how successful the party was in their first national contest. And turn to the slide, the election of 1892. In this election, the populist nominated former Union General James Weaver to run for president, so this is a three-candidate race. Grover Cleveland, the Democrat, Benjamin Harrison, the Republican, and Weaver, the Populist. Despite the rhetoric and enthusiasm, in the 1892 election, Weaver received only 9% of the popular vote and 22 electoral votes. 
part of the problem was he had been a Union general who had marched with William Tecumseh Sherman in Georgia. And in fact, a Georgia crowd threw eggs at him and his wife, prompting Mary Lee's to say, quote, Miss Weaver was made a regular walking omelet by Southern chivalry of Georgia, end quote. So obviously, Weaver did not fare very well in the South. Another part of the problem was voter fraud from Democrats, who sometimes paid African Americans to vote Democratic over the populists. As a result, this soured many white populists, like Tom Watson of Georgia, on the possibility of creating biracial alliances, and this was a lost opportunity at racial equality. Many populists ended up supporting the full removal of voting rights from African Americans as a result of this election. In the end, Grover Cleveland won the 1892 election, but the populists had made inroads and managed to split Republican and Democratic voters in the Plain States in the Greater West. Their support there would lead to many Democrats in the region to abandon part of their laissez-faire ideology and join the populist in calls for reform. It would come to fruition after the next economic calamity. So please advance to the next slide entitled, Panic in the Economy. The next economic catastrophe came in early 1893, called the Panic of 1893. And ultimately, this became the worst depression in the United States until the Great Depression in the 1930s. Thousands of businesses and hundreds of banks failed. The causes of this crisis were complex, a result of international situations, plus the worldwide deflationary crisis, but in the end, Cleveland got blamed. Whenever economic issues strike, people often protest to seek redress from the government, We see this today and also in the past, as Americans have a long tradition of protesting economic inequality. In 1894, a group called the Commonwealth of Christ, aka Jacob Copsey's army, marched on Washington, D.C. Over 600 people from around the country demanded that the government put the jobless to work building roads. This was seen as a radical idea at the time. But note, they aren't asking for handouts, they just want to work. So how do you think the government will respond? Well, politicians spread rumors that said that these protesters planned to attack the U.S. Treasury, even though they carried white flags. When Coxie tried to give a speech asking for government aid on the Capitol steps, he was arrested for trespassing on the Capitol grass. Then... The protesters were forcibly removed from the premises under threat of violence. But those who were angry with the economic situation would not be so easily deterred and would use the next major elections to voice their dissatisfaction. So turn to the next slide, Panic in Politics. The panic made the currency debate even more intense. In August 1893, President Cleveland blamed the panic on the silver agitators and called a special session of Congress to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, and the president then bullied members of Congress into doing this. As a result, Western and Southern Democrats then turned on Cleveland, and one Southern Democrat from South Carolina called Pitchfork Ben Tillman said he wanted to stick a pitchfork into that, quote, bag of beef, 
referring to the tubby Cleveland. The chance to voice their anger came in the midterm elections of 1894. With the Democrats struggling, the populists saw a great opportunity to pick up some congressional seats. They did gain a few seats in the South, but they lost ground in the Plains and in the West, since many Democrats there, like William Jennings Bryan, who we'll see in a minute, adopted a reform platform to offset the populist surge. In the midterms, the Republicans were the big winners, picking up over 100 seats, making it one of the biggest congressional turnovers in history. So while the populists weren't able to capitalize on those Democratic losses, they had a question to answer. What should they do going forward? Should they continue to go alone or try to fuse with a major party in the coming presidential election of 1896? So turn to the next slide, the campaign of 1896. Since the money question had become so important, many populists thought that they should press the silver issue going forward, though many understood that free silver was merely a panacea or a false hope for the real problem of labor versus capital, speculation, and underregulation. In 1896, the presidential election was a contest between the Democrats and Republicans. And this is because many Northeastern Democrats had been defeated in the 1894 midterms. So South and Western Democrats now controlled the party and they were willing to adopt more populist proposals. They ensured the nomination of 36-year-old Nebraska Congressman William Jennings Bryan. And he delivered a speech called the Cross of Gold at the Democratic National Convention. Now, I've attached a recording that Brian made later of the speech on the PowerPoint. It's nine minutes long, so you should really only listen to the last minute of it, but I'll repeat some of it here. Quote, You come to us and tell us that the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. We reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. We will answer their demand for the gold standard by saying to them, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. End quote. So Brian and the Democrats here are calling for bimetallism, the use of gold and silver to back currency. The Republican Party, meanwhile, had nominated William McKinley of Ohio, and Republicans called for the gold standard, though McKinley preferred to talk about the tariff as the key to economic recovery. So many of you may be asking, what happened to the populists? Well, many populists thought it would be counterproductive to nominate their own candidate and split the pro-silver vote, so they decided to nominate Bryan too. In other words, They fused with the Democrats, and many correctly believed that this would doom the party to oblivion. Make a note here, though, Brian did never publicly acknowledge that he was nominated on the populist ticket. This campaign, like many today, was portrayed as apocalyptic. Brian crisscrossed the United States, giving hundreds of speeches, which was a new strategy at the time, and he made specific appeals to workers 
but his rural tone in his campaign, quote, your cities and our farms, offended many urban workers. McKinley's campaign manager also raised a lot of money from businessmen and ran ads, which is similar today. He depicted Bryan as a dangerous radical and said that silver would allow debtors to pay off their debts with play money. Factory workers liked McKinley's focus on the tariff, which they believed would protect U.S. industry and thus help them keep their jobs. Many Catholics and immigrants, who had been traditional Democrats, also ended up voting for McKinley because Bryan sounded too much like an evangelical radical for their tastes. In the end, McKinley won. But look at the electoral map. It tells an interesting story. The Plain States went to the Democrats, as did the Solid South, as usual. The Democrats did manage to split some Midwestern states, but look, the GOP firmly controlled the Midwest, New England, and etc. This dominance will last for years. One of the biggest results of the election of 1896 was that the People's Party barely carried on for a few more years. They did nominate Bryan again in 1900, but they eventually fizzled out. But the role of the Populist Party to changing American politics cannot be understated. As the historian Robert McMath once said, quote, The populist fashioned a space within which Americans begin to imagine alternative futures shaped by the promise of equal rights. End quote. Please turn to the last slide entitled, turning point. The election of 1896 was a turning point for many reasons. Republicans and Democrats had been evenly matched during the Gilded Age, but now Republicans would have a lock on the presidency and on Congress until the 1930s, with Woodrow Wilson as the exception in 1912 and 1916. In 1900, the gold standard became law, and by then the economy had recovered as gold was discovered in Alaska, South Africa, and Australia, so the currency debate lost steam. This election also changed the way that presidential campaigns were conducted, as candidates were now expected to give speeches all over the country and run flashy ads that were paid for with campaign contributions from big business. Most critically, Democrats, who had traditionally been laissez-faire, began to change, and William Jennings Bryan started the process where the Democratic Party went from the party of laissez-faire economics to a more regulatory or interventionist government. Over the next few decades, William Jennings Bryan influenced the Democratic Party platform in four elections, and the end result would change American politics forever, as the Democrats wanted more federal government action. However, we should note, both parties began to support more positive government, which ultimately culminated in the progressive era, which we will talk about next week. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.